Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have James McKay. He's the CEO of Aristea Therapeutics. We're going to talk about palmoplantar Postulosis, PPP, a debilitating inflammatory skin condition. We're also going to talk about Aristea itself and a little bit of James's background. So, James, thanks for coming. No, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, I learned that um, it's usually more exciting to have people talk a little bit about their background instead of just reading a dry paragraph. So, if, if you wouldn't mind, tell me a bit about yourself and how you came to uh, head Aristea. Yeah, sure, Richard. So James McKay, I'm the CEO and founder of Aristea Therapeutics. I was a long-term AstraZeneca executive, was with the company for nearly 30 years. Started off my career in the UK, that you can probably tell from my Scottish accent. Led the clinical team that took Seroquel through to approval, ended up becoming one of AstraZeneca's biggest selling drugs. And then held various project leader, portfolio management positions in clinical development, ultimately was responsible for managing all of AstraZeneca's clinical outsourced activity across the whole portfolio. It's over a billion dollars a year of uh, clinical outsourced activity. So spend a lot of time developing relationships with other companies, working across obviously multiple different projects in the portfolio. And then moved across to the US in 2010 to head up the diabetes collaboration with Bristol-Myers Squibb. Took several products through to approval from that diabetes collaboration. And then we eventually acquired all of that business from uh, from BMS. And then my final role um, at AstraZeneca, I led the AstraZeneca team that acquired another biotech here in San Diego, where I'm based now, called Ardea Biosciences. It was developing treatments for uh, gout. Set that up as an independent unit. And then I came down to San Diego to take over the CEO role of that organization, which I did for five years, got two products approved. And then about four years ago, I decided to leave AstraZeneca and 
set up Aristea Therapeutics. So that's the that's the history of how I'm here uh, running a biotech in in San Diego. I know it's not a hundred on topic, hundred percent on topic, but I had one brush with gout, which was terrible. Um, so I'm just curious about what's a what some of the drugs and treatments that have come up about it, if you wouldn't mind for a moment. Thank you for saying that, because often people that suffer from gout don't want to talk about it because there's a an unfair and incorrect stigma associated with it, that it's all to do with your diet, which in fact is not the case. The main reason for uh, gout is that uh, basically the body can't excrete enough uric acid. And the treatments that are available today are really pretty old treatments that reduce the production of, of uric acid. And we'd actually developed a, a molecule called lisinurad that actually blocked the URAT1 inhibitor and actually uh, caused the excretion of the, the uric acid. And we were using that in combination with allopurinol that um, stopped the production of uric acid. So a kind of double mechanism of action um, approach and got that approved by the FDA and, and EMA. Um, there are, you know, I've always felt that the uh, treatment that gout patients get is inadequate, and there's a there's a lot of unmedical need there. And I'm actually happy to say I'm still involved in gout drug development because I sit on the board of another company called Arthrosi Therapeutics, which is made up of ex-Ardea people that I worked with, and they are developing a next-generation URAT1 inhibitor that looks fantastic. So hopefully gout patients are going to have uh, an even better drug to uh, to be able to treat them in the future. Yeah, I had like a really super minor version of it, but it was still terrible. I very, very painful, debilitating. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've, I've heard tales of like a bed sheet touching someone's toe and them screaming or a fan blowing on it. And I understand why. Like it was it was really bad for a while, but yeah, they it even, was not nearly you know, as bad. Even people saying that, you know, someone opens and closes a door and changes the air pressure in the room and it can be excruciatingly painful. So, yeah, nasty, nasty disease. Well, tell me about Aristea. What, what are you working on right now there? Yeah, so Aristea Therapeutics is, um, is an immunology-focused clinical stage uh, biotech based here in uh, San Diego. And we licensed um, a CXCR2 antagonist from AstraZeneca. That was a molecule I was very familiar with from my time at AstraZeneca and had been being developed by AstraZeneca for respiratory indications. And as part of a portfolio prioritization a number of years ago, that whole program was put up on the shelf. And I always liked the molecule and made a mental note to, to keep an eye on it because it actually, we'd already proved that it did what it was meant to do. So it stops neutrophils trafficking from bone marrow to the site of inflammation or infection, wherever that is in the body. So we knew that the molecule worked. And for me, it was a molecule that was searching for a disease. So when we had the opportunity to set up Aristea Therapeutics, you know, we licensed that molecule from AstraZeneca. And then we went back to the basic science and said, look, we know that this molecule stops neutrophils trafficking to the site of inflammation. So let's find some diseases where neutrophils are the key mediating role in the uh, inflammation. And we identified neutrophilic dermatoses as a, a group of diseases, so inflammatory skin conditions. And then together with some dermatology experts, we narrowed that down initially to palmar plantar postulosis, or, or PPP is a much easier way to say it, which is, a, again, is an inflammatory skin condition where patients get multiple outbreaks of sterile neutrophil-filled pustules on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, nowhere else on the body. And they get about six to eight flares a year, and they don't get resolution between the flares. So 
you get this vicious sort of flare upon flare upon flare situation where the skin becomes more inflamed, becomes cracked, obviously becomes extremely um, painful. And these patients really have no effective treatment to actually, um, you know, reduce the symptoms of the disease. So it's very debilitating, obviously, as well, you know, on the palms of the hands, it's, you know, there's a social stigma associated with that. People find it really difficult to work. If it's on the feet, it's actually very difficult to walk. So we felt that there was a very significant unmet medical need here. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence that neutrophils were the key mediating cell in the disease. And there was also evidence of elevated levels of CXCR2 in, in lesional skin of these patients. So we felt that, you know, targeting the neutrophil here rather than any of the individual cytokines that might be involved in this disease was a good way to, uh, good way to tackle this pretty recalcitrant disease. Why does it happen? Why is there seem to be an overproduction or maybe a, the neutrophils are getting sent to the wrong, wrong location or they're not getting signaling to stop? Like what causes it? Yeah, it's interesting. There's not a lot of basic research being done on, on PPP because it's a relatively rare condition. There are about 175,000 people um, suffer from it in the US. And there's not a lot of basic research being done. Um, one of the interesting things about PPP is that the patients are predominantly postmenopausal women and predominantly women who either have been cigarette smokers or are current cigarette smokers. And, um, you know, there's some evidence that there's a link here to the nicotine receptor in the acrosyringium in the skin. And the, the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, the skin is different from elsewhere in the body in terms of its structure. And it, feel, it you know, hypothesized that you get a sort of nidus of inflammation in the acrosyringium. And then that then develops into a pustule and the neutrophil is the main cell that, uh, you know, is, is causing that inflammatory process. But much more work to, uh, to do. We're doing some basic research with one of the, the leading um, PPP investigators, Masamura Kami, based in Japan. And, you know, we hope that that'll help us to understand the disease um, a bit. But, you know, we've had, we, we did a phase 2A proof of concept study. We saw some nice activity of our molecule, particularly in patients who were actively flaring as they were coming into the trial. So we've just actually started recruiting into a phase 2B dose ranging study. And we'll probably get data from that around about the middle of 2023, so about 18 months time. So we're hopeful based on the data that we saw in the 2A study that with a longer treatment period, we'll be treating for three months in this phase 2B study compared to one month in the phase 2A that we'll actually see some nice efficacy data and good um, safety profile that'll allow us to move this forward and, you know, give these patients uh, an opportunity to have some relief from uh, what's a pretty nasty disease. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Does it start in the hands or in the feet, or does it appear simultaneously? Any clues as to 
how it starts and why? Yeah, it can be any of those. So some patients have only got it on the hands, some have only got it on the feet, and some have got it on both. Also, you get some situations where the patient will have it on the right hand, but not the left hand. Um, so there's no real there's no real understanding about why you know it um, you know may develop only in the in the palms of the hands or the soles of the feet or in both uh, cases. But um, in in any case, pretty debilitating for the patients. Well, it sounds like the skin microbiome might have a role. To, you know, I don't know if that's been characterized or studied, but perhaps that has a role. Yeah, there's been there's no there's nothing published that would indicate that um, the microbi- skin microbiome I think is uh, is a very interesting topic. I actually sit on the board of another company called Matrices Bioscience. It's also based here in San Diego. That's actually developing a skin microbiome treatment for atopic dermatitis. It comes from the um, the research coming out of Rich Gallo's lab at um, UCSD here in San Diego. So I think it's a it's a fascinating area, um, the skin microbiome, and you know we, we we haven't seen any successes yet, but you know we're we're hopeful with matrices that we'll see something. So you know we'll keep an eye on what develops there, and you know see if there's any role in some of these other inflammatory skin conditions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Um, what, um, so what happens when you suppress the neutrophils from going to, uh, I guess maybe what they consider a wound site or an inflammatory site, what are the off target effects of the drug? Yeah, very good question, Richard. So the main, you know, safety aspect that we need to be concerned about is neutropenia. So low levels of, of neutrophils and, you know, neutrophils are, are good cells in terms of being able to, to fight infection. Also, you know, uh, sometimes bad cells in terms of perpetuating an inflammatory response. And the, the key with a CXCR2 antagonist is that it actually sequesters the neutrophils in the bone marrow. But what you want to do is you want to titrate the dose of the, of the molecule that's doing that, and in this case, a CXCR2 antagonist, to make sure that you reduce the number of neutrophils in the circulation, but don't completely suppress the movement of the neutrophils into the circulation. So you know, normally, um, you know, normal, um, healthy individuals will have two, two and a half thousand level of neutrophils um, in their blood. Once you get below one thousand, a level of one thousand, or, or indeed five hundred, physicians start to get very concerned about patients getting in opportunistic infections. Um, so, really, what we've done is really titrate our drug to make sure that, you know, we're using a dose level that will suppress the level of neutrophils by, you know, maybe 50 or 60%, but doesn't actually drop the the level so low that the patient would come, would get into a a neutropenic situation. I think one of the good things about our molecule, or a couple of good things is that, you know, if a patient was to develop um, neutropenia, the effects are reversible pretty rapidly. So you can stop, it's an oral small molecule, so you can stop taking the drug and within a matter of days, the neutrophil levels will be back to normal. So physicians can take immediate action should that happen. Although you know we're hoping that we uh, that we don't see that. The other thing that's important about our molecule is that it only blocks CXCR2, which you know is the key um, cytokine for uh, for moving the neutrophils from the bone marrow to the site of inflammation. We don't block CXCR1 that's required for the oxidative burst that's required to fight an infection. And therefore, although we've reduced the levels of neutrophils in the blood, those neutrophils are actually still functional 
and can be activated by CXCR1 should there be an infection that needs to be fought. Hmm, okay. <clears throat> for people that have PPP where it's periodic and not constant, what is the protocol for them to have it only when they have a flare-up or to just use it forever and then you know they should be okay and not have flare-ups at all? Yeah, so PPP is a chronic disease. Although they although it's a flaring disease, the patients always have some evidence of the disease, so they never get full resolution in between the flares. It just gets better or worse depending on whether they're having a, an active flare or not. So, you know, we've already had discussions with the FDA and confirmed that this is a chronic treatment um, and that, you know, once a patient starts taking this, they'll continue to take this all the time in order to, to make sure that we're, you know, suppressing the ability of the neutrophils to, to respond to whatever is causing the stimulus for the, the flare. So patients will, will take this, you know, it's a once a day tablet. They'll take it for basically uh, or chronically after they start taking it. So what, um, where is it? Is it in clinical use right now or is it still a while till it gets there? Or where is it at? No, so we're, we're actually in phase 2B. So AstraZeneca had completed the phase one uh, single ascending dose and multiple ascending dose studies before we uh, took um, ownership of the molecule. And then we conducted a phase 2A proof concept study that showed us that the molecule was working in this disease. And we're now doing a phase 2B dose ranging where we're looking at a couple of different doses, 400 milligrams and 200 milligrams per day. And that'll help us define, you know, the dose to take into the, uh, the final stage of testing, which is phase three. And then obviously, you know, if the data's good from the phase three studies, we'll submit that to the regulatory authorities for a request for approval, commercialize the drug. Okay, very good. What, what else do you guys have in the pipeline that's interesting to talk about? Well, we actually have a pipeline in a product. So we're actually doing multiple clinical trials with RIST4721, which is our CXCR2 antagonist. So as well as the PPP program, we're doing proof of concept studies in a couple of rheumatology conditions where, again, the neutrophils, the scientific data shows that neutrophils play a key role. One of those is familial Mediterranean fever, or FMF, and another one is Bechet's disease. Both of those are orphan diseases in the U.S., about 20,000 patients in the U.S. for each of those diseases, so a relatively small population. Standard of care treatment for those diseases is colchicine, but about 40% of patients are not well controlled on colchicine. And we have some evidence from our preclinical work where we actually saw a significant synergy between colchicine and our CXCR2 antagonist, RIS4721. So we saw a much bigger anti-inflammatory response when we used the two drugs together. So we're actually going to test RIS4721 on top of a background of colchicine that the patients are already on to see if that synergy actually translates through in, into the humans and into the, the clinic. And both those studies will get up underway this year. And again, we'll probably have data from those studies about the middle of 2023. And last year, we also struck a collaboration and option to acquire deal with uh, Arena Pharmaceuticals, that's uh, a public pharmaceutical company here in, in San Diego. Um, and as part of that collaboration, we're doing a couple of additional studies, a proof of concept study in hydratinitis suprativa, or HS, which is a another very nasty inflammatory skin condition, and also a study in inflammatory bowel disease. So we'll have five indications running in parallel as we move through 2022 into 2023. And 
will in the middle of 2023 will be a, a big time for us with uh, readouts from all of those uh, those clinical trials. And then in addition to that, we're very actively looking for other immunology assets to bring into the the company. We are we signed a, a term sheet at the end of uh, December to bring an asset in. I can't talk any more about what that is at, the, at this stage because we're in a confidential due diligence phase of that, but hopefully we can we can bring that asset into the company. Again, it would be to, to treat an inflammatory skin condition. And we've got about another 20 or so different molecules from, you know, either from Big Pharma or from biotech that we're looking at right now and doing doing our due diligence and research on to determine, you know, which ones we'd like to try and bring into the company. All of them are immunology focused assets. Some of them will be focused ultimately on dermatology indications, but we're we're therapy area agnostic. So we tend to to look for molecules where we like the mechanism of action. We like the profile of the molecule. We believe it can be developed into a drug. And then we go searching with the science in order to find what we believe is the best disease to uh, to try and uh, treat with the drug. Is anyone looking at a more broad approach where a series of master molecules, if they exist, would be able would, would allow you to tune a person's immune system to express or dampen certain uh, you know major factors and production cytokines, neutrophils, et cetera? Is anyone looking at it? kind of holistically in trying to establish a control of a drug-based control system for immune systems. Yeah. So, I mean, as you probably know, the immune system is incredibly complex and, you know, a lot of the, in fact, most of the treatments in development for, you know, immune-based diseases are targeting single cytokines or single points in the immune system. Sometimes that's very effective. So there are a number of, you know, molecules that target single cytokines, things like IL-17, IL-23, IL-36, IL-1, you know, that have been successful. One of the challenges, however, and I think this is maybe what you're getting to, is that there's a lot of redundancy in the immune system. So by targeting a single cytokine, often what happens is that the immune system will then respond by activating another pathway that will ultimately, you know, allow that disease to continue to progress. And that's one of the reasons why um, although we are not targeting multiple cytokines, we're actually going upstream of all the cytokines that are involved in PPP and these other diseases to actually target the neutrophil. So we're taking a really quite a different approach from most companies who would target a single cytokine or single point in the immune pathway, and we're going upstream of that. So I think we're we're actually doing what you were what you were pointing out and targeting, you know, whatever is downstream of the neutrophils. Well, excellent. James, what's the best way for people to keep tabs on your work and on Aristea's work? Where can the people go? Yeah, so we our website, it's www.aristeatx.com. The website's actually about to get a brand new refresh. So people check in in a couple of weeks time, then they'll see the brand new website. We're also very active on social media, LinkedIn and Twitter. So if you search for Aristea Therapeutics and you know follow us, then you'll, uh, you'll be kept up to date and uh, understand what's happening with the company and get news about the, you know, the progression of RIST 4721's development and hopefully uh, you know, helping these patients and also new molecules that we, uh, that we bring into the, the portfolio. Excellent. Well, James, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.
It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thank you very much for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.